This episode of The Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their online initiative, primesoil.com. To find out what that's all about, go to primesoil.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Take Two of The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder, and friend, Ed Condon. The reason I say Take Two is because Take One just did not work. We were talking about Marco Rupnik, and I don't know, Ed, what was going on there? I think opinions differ, but we were both agreed that it wasn't working. So we're going to we take another We both agreed that it wasn't working. And the nice thing about this show is it's not live radio, so we're doing it again. We are. We're going to do it again. Yeah. Uh, so what we're talking about this week, this this is, uh, we're recording this podcast on a Monday, but it's actually last week's show. So if you just want to sort of get caught up with what's happening in the sort of pillar podcast universe right now, this is the this is effectively the show for the 27th of October, but we're recording it on the 30th of October because I was in Rome on the 37th, 27th of October. I was sort of trying to get things finished up. And there are two big stories that emerged out of Rome last week, and we're going to talk about them both. What we're going to try and do is give you kind of an accurate there, there was a lot of misinformation about both of them. So we're going to try to give you sort of an accurate picture of the reality of them, and then we'll um, we'll tell you what we think it means and, and all of that. But Ed, do you want to – so there are two big things that happened in, in uh, Bella Roma last week. Um, I, I would say one big thing and one one medium-sized thing. Well, which is the big one in your mind? Rupnik. Um, okay. I, the synod was an inevitability at this <laughs> Marco Rupnik became Father Marco Rupnik again last week, didn't he? Well, he was always Father Marco Rupnik. He, he was, actually. Been, that's true. He's, been removed he has, from the clerical he's state. not been removed from the clerical state all along. He's been Father Marco Rupnik. We've been calling him Marco Rupnik because he was just expelled from the Jesuits. But actually, I think that's probably an aberrant, it's probably an, an incorrect use of our own style guidelines. In well, North. no, I don't think so because he was always a cleric, but. Um, Lacking incarnation, he was in a sort of weird legal gray area where he didn't have faculties. He was uh, he was suspended from ministry, sort of ipso facto, by the by not having either a religious institute or a diocese in which he was incarnated. So you know, when you when when a cleric is suspended from ministry, normally amongst the things that are suspended is the right to be styled father and to present himself as a cleric and all of that sort of thing. So I think eliding his clerical title and not calling him father when he was Oh, that sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, I love it. Uh, that, that was my just that was that was why I was doing it. I okay. Was, yeah, I love I it. I, I hadn't. Yeah. So you guys know. So Marco Rupnik is a disgraced former member of the Society of Jesus, a priest, a, a, um, a somewhat prolific mosaic artist who has mosaics in churches all around the world, who was accused last year of um, a very oh, sexually abusing almost as many women as he has created mosaics from. What yeah, exactly. <laughs> abusing very, very many women, uh, uh, particularly members of a religious community in sl- his native Slovenia, and uh, uh, some of whom went with him to Rome and and became with him sort of founding members of this place called the Central Letty, which is a kind of art center that that he founded there. Um, a big scandal surrounded Rupnik last year. It turned out that he had been um, briefly excommunicated in a penal process from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith for the crime of um, absolving an accomplice in a sin against the Sixth Commandment. Um, there has been the pers- but there are the, all these perduring allegations against him of sexual abuse and misconduct uh, against these nuns. There has been the insinuation or the concern that the Pope has protected Marco Rupnik, who remain who is sort of this like has been this sort of very. Uh, sort of man about town in Rome, an extremely well-respected um, uh, priest among the sort of uh, power brokers of the Roman Curia, a member of several Roman dicasteries, uh, a guy who kind of is feted around the world, who gave a retreat for members of the Roman Curia last year, um, despite the allegations against him. And uh, he was kicked out of the Jesuits earlier this year because um, while the Jesuits didn't have the ability to try him for serially sexual, the crime, the alleged crimes of serious sexually abusing women, they did have the ability to accuse him of serial disobedience in the Society of Jesus, which they did, and kicked him out. That led to the big news, Ed, on Wednesday. Yeah, um, while the while the Society of Jesus did choose to kick him out to basically um, exclaustrate him, I suppose, um, from the from the Society of Jesus, they didn't go all the way. They didn't elect to to push for his laicization, which they could have done. Um, and I mean, we reported previously and explained how and why they, they could have had Marco Rupnik laicized. In fact, the congregation for clergy has the faculties to, to laicize priests, uh, who do things of the kind that Marco Rupnik was kicked out of the Jesuits for. That is to say, not the grotesque spiritual 
and sexual abuse or the blasphemies against the sacraments of which he's serially accused. Um, but just the, just the disobedience to his superiors that, um, you know, that, sorry, the dicastery for clergy has the, has the competence to handle laicizations for those reasons. And, and I mean, does, I mean, it's publicly known in diocese, certainly in this country and around the world that, you know, they, they laicized guys um, accused of far less than Mark Rupnik was, but the Jesuits elected not to pursue that. They just sort of left him as a, as an in-between, a headless cleric, which canon law expressed. Can't have that. You're not supposed to have that. And, and this is, for me, it was always hard to think of situations which might create an acephalous cleric until Marco Rupnik's situation kind of created one. You know what I mean? Like he'll probably be the textbook example of an acephalous cleric in canon law classes from now until until the, until the, until the end of time. Yeah, I mean, the only previous guy who who really made a push for it but never quite made it was Frank Pavone. Um, yeah, really wanted to be an assembly. Really cleric. wanted to be an assembly cleric in every in every way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that's right. So anyway, uh, but then on on Wednesday last week, we, we it started to emerge. I think starting uh, seven was the first place where it emerged. I I don't think it was the first place. It was the first English language. English place. language. Yeah, thank you. It was the first English language place where it emerged. Um. That Marco Rupnik's home diocese is in, say, the diocese from which he originally hails in Slovenia. The diocese bishop there had granted him um, incarnation, sort of pro tem ad experimentum, which is usually what happens when a priest transfers his incarnations. Mm-hmm. It starts off with usually a five-year experimental period, but had granted him um, incarnation. This was met in some quarters, including mine, um, <laughs> with confusion as to why a bishop would would take a priest and incarnate him when the priest is manifestly disgraced and has been the subject to a penal case which resulted in his excommunication and has decades of sexual abuse accusations against him and i mean when when uh, a cleric transfers incarnation from one place to another the the votum of the superior from which he's coming is supposed to weigh heavily and inform the decision of the bishop who's being asked to receive him. And we can we don't know if Mark Rupnik's home bishop uh, consulted formally the Society of Jesus. I suppose he didn't have to because you know he was Mark Rupnik was in this weird sort of headless state at that point. Um, he didn't have a superior, but except it did recent- turn out that who was consulted the Apostolic Nunciature. The episode like Nuncio to Slovenia was consulted, right? Yeah, that's another curious decision. Um, <laughs> why why you would want the Holy See's take on this for through the diplomatic channels, I don't know, but but there you are. Um but anyway, the, the Society of Jesus would have said, had they been asked, I imagine, that they had conducted an extensive investigation into the decades of allegations against Marco Rupnik of pertaining to the sexual abuse of religious sisters, that the DDF had declined to waive prescription that is the statute of limitations, but their investigation had returned what they called a very high degree of credibility mm-hmm. uh, to his accusers. So it's not, this isn't a guy who screams suitable for ministry. Right, um, exactly. Here's a, here's a, but so that was my initial reaction anyway, was, you know, how was this possible? Why would this happen? Who would do this? Uh, but it turned out that um, the diocese knew exactly what it was doing, and you know, eventually they responded to us, and they said uh, that um, Bishop, the Bishop of Koper, admitted to him that is Rupnik on the basis of the decree of Rupnik's dismissal from the Jesuit order, and on the basis of Rupnik's request for admission, uh, th- and on the basis of the fact that Rupnik has not been sent. This is a direct quote: "On the basis of the fact that Rupnik has not been sentenced to any judicial sentence." Which is factually inaccurate. He, oh yeah, he was. He he was in fact given a judicial sentence, which was excommunication. It didn't last very long, but he was has it? A, was it just a, this is a minor technical pedantic point? But was it a judicial? But if we but if we don't raise it, our listeners will. Uh, was it a uh, judicial sentence, or was he, did he have an administrative penal process? Was it an administrative decree that's declared as excommunication? Well, uh, I don't think we. I think I think I've seen the word judicial used, including okay. from things around the Jesuits on this. But that's the Society of Jesus's own public accounts of how things rolled with the yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and we've we noticed a few times that they're not canonists, and so sometimes when they describe things, there's a little bit of vagary there. But in one way or another, he had a process, and he was declared excommunicated at the conclusion of that process. Yes, and it was yeah. a penal process, and it was according to canon law. That's right. Uh, so there's that. Um, but they didn't choose to cite canon law in their response to us regarding Marco Rupnik. This is the Diocese of Koper. They they actually instead quoted the Declaration on Human Rights. Yes, um, that was a wrong decision, wasn't it? 
who is accused of a criminal offense has the right to be presumed innocent until he's found guilty according to the law in a public proceeding in which he's given every opportunity to defend himself. Well, uh, as for public proceedings in in the law, I'm all in favor. We don't (laughs) have many of them. Good luck with that. I would remind everyone that that the Holy See is not actually a signatory to the International Convention on Human Rights. So that's a bit of a dead letter to and cite. And we it. don't have our canonical penal processes are not public proceedings by any stretch of the imagination. No. Just ask the Holy See who's subject to a penal process and see what happens. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and finally, I would note that um, Marco Rupnik has not, at this point, being Wednesday last week when his incarnation became known, um, he, the only reason he hadn't been subject to a criminal penal process relating to the decades of sexual abuse allegations against him is because the Holy See declined to waive the canonical statute of limitations. So this is all a very bullshy sort of, you know, response from the diocese, which just ended up with saying, until such time as the above sentence is pronounced on Rubnik, he enjoys all the rights and duties of diocesan priests, which is also not factually accurate because a duty of the diocesan priest is to actually be in the diocese in which he's incarnated. And he presumably has the permission of his bishop to live in Rome, but he is indeed living in Rome. He has not yeah. taken up an assignment for the diocese of Coper. No, I, I can only assume because if he tried to, the local peasantry would surround the building and set fire <laughs> to it. But. Now, we also presume that, I mean, we can kind of presume that he has faculty. So there's this t- things happening where the bishop incarnated him, and we know that Rupnik has still been living in Rome. I think the diocese conceded as much. We know that Rupnik has been hanging around the central Aleti. Um it's hard to tell if he's been presenting himself as a priest because uh, Marco, I've never seen Marco Rubnick in clerics, so how would one know? Um, but we presume, I think, Ed, that the bishop probably also gave him f- faculties, don't you think? I mean, priestly faculties? I, I, I don't see any way not to, uh, that he didn't. I mean, what is what is the incarnation effect if not his restoration to some kind of ministerial capability. I mean, yeah, I mean, the bishop would have to confer faculties as a separate act. I mean, confer for him the faculty of confession and things like that as a sort of separate act. But but, I mean, to to say mass, I mean, that's to say mass. No, but by virtue of the fact that he is sort of um, an unincarnated cleric, he's not impeded by law. Like he, when he was, when he was a cephalus, he was impeded by law um, because he sort of incurs this sort of ipso facto irregularity. But, now that he's incarnated, he's not a cephalus. And so, yeah, he, he has the faculty of saying mass, he, except where except where the um, rector of a church denies him, he has the right to pre, you know, I mean, he has like certain clerical. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it, it wasn't explicitly addressed by the Diocese of Copair in their response to us. But I mean, I think it's inferable from their, from their statement that he, quote unquote, enjoys all of the rights and duties of a diocesan priest, I I mean, I would assume he's given him faculties to hear confession, which is kind of shocking given his... I know. If that's true, I mean, just think about that for a minute. This person who is accused of, like, serially abusing the confessional for sake of um, his own sort of sexual perversion and abusive course of tendencies of um, committing serial acts of abuse in the context of spiritual direction and confession, this bishop who said, oh, well, you know, he he has the right to um, he hasn't been convicted of anything. He's the right to his good name. He's the right to his good name. I mean, this bishop has presumably taken upon himself n- not just the liability in a legal sense, but the moral responsibility for putting this person back in a confessional. That's an extraordinary thing. Does that make it you is. angry yet? It does make me very angry. Although, um, you know, do we want to talk about my anger issues now? We can talk about my anger issues in the bonus episode. I guess. Okay, that sounds fine. The I don't bonus want to episode, distract. by the way, if you're a subscriber to the Pillar at PillarCatholic.com, you can get our weekly bonus episodes where we talk about things like Ed's anger issues. I didn't realize I had them, but apparently I do. But I think it's actually good for me. And we'll explain. I, I'll explain. I have a whole theory. I, and there's medical data to back it up. Um, but this anyway. bishop, look, this bishop has effectively what we learned is that this bishop, if indeed he's given Rupnik confessional faculties, has taken upon himself the moral responsibility for any way in which this person might continue to do the thing which he's alleged to have done dozens of times, namely abuse the sacrament, defile both the sacrament and the dignity of a person by sexually coercing persons in the context of the, of the sacrament. That's what we learned on Wednesday. Yes. And that answer of the bishop you know, he hasn't been convicted of anything. He has a right to his good name. It struck me as like the quintessential pre-2002 answer to questions about priests accused of abuse and neglect. Like, well, why are you, I mean, you know, no one's 
tried him of anything. Don't gossip. Don't rumor monger. We're going to give him, we're giving him a chance. It, it struck me as like, it, it seemed almost encased in amber. Like one would vivify it to create a dinosaur in Jurassic Park. Um, that this guy, that this bishop would just think that that answer would fly and would not be met with widespread scandal demoralization. I don't know. I, I disagree with you there. Um, because I mean, the, the I was more surprised. Like I thought, if anyone was going to give this guy a shot and give him some faculties and you know restore to it, honestly, I thought he'd be incarnated in the diocese of Rome because the you cardinal were waiting, vicar. Waiting for that because we've been noticing the cardinal arch, the cardinal vicar of Rome. So Loves the bishop the of Rome is Pope Francis, but the person who runs the diocese of Rome is the cardinal vicar of Rome, and we've been noticing the cardinal vicar of Rome like giving the pope a great deal or giving Rupnik a sort of great deal of credibility in recent. Months. Not just credibility, but like openly rubbishing the the actual criminal yep. processes to which he has been subject and things he has been convicted for. Yeah, you know, just like I mean, Cardinal De Donat, just the the vicar of the diocese of Rome. I mean, he's been crossing streets to pick fights on behalf of Marco Rupp. Yeah. So I figured, you know, why not? And maybe this was there. I mean, I have a theory, and this is a theory, but I have a theory that actually having him incarnated in his home diocese in Slovenia was actually what they worked out. Like they were going to do it in Rome and somebody said, eh, look, we all agree Marco Rupnik's a great guy and we love <laughs> his star, sick, soulless, wide-eyed mosaic artwork. But even we agree, <laughs> those other people out there, those unenlightened people who take the, a dim the view pillar of using, is going to The pillar yeah, is going to push Those angry, here. conservative Catholics waves arms generally at the internet will probably think it's a step too far to incarnate in the mother diocese of the church in the world a man who used the sacred vessels of mass as tools allegedly. as sex toys, allegedly. Maybe that's too much. But if they did it in Slovenia, that's fine. Like, you know, maybe nobody will notice. That's honestly what I think. What happens in Slovenia, they say. I, I believe that's the tourism. Uh, I really hope that's not true. But no, I'm okay. sure. I'm Oh, okay. it's not. Yeah. Look, you played poker in boxcars with Russian oligarchs in Finland. So I don't know. For all I know, you've been to Slovenia on vacation and that was the... I have not been to Slovenia. Speaking of trying to distance myself from Slovenia, you'll notice how quickly... We're going to come back to what happened next, but you'll notice how quickly tourism is for people is the tourist slogan of Slovenia. Tourism... Oh, wait. Tourism is people. Wow. I'm not sure that's I don't better. even know... I don't even know what that... Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In 2006, oh no, sorry, and earlier than that, in the early 2000s, the nation of Slovenia launched the tourism slogan, Slovenia Invigorates, which in retrospect has not well stood the test of time. Hmm. Yeah. Followed by, I, in 2006, they changed to do, I feel Slovenia. Wow. <laughs> Car drives you, buddy. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, they're, wow. Okay. I'm just trying to get my head back on track. Oh, so, so that was, that's my theory is that actually the intention originally was to incarnate Marco Rupnik in the diocese of Rome so he could hang out at the Centraliti as he's been doing all of this time uh -huh. and carry on exactly before as though none yeah, of this unseemly living, business. Living like he's always been living. Yeah. Yeah. Where the, all of this unseemly business of all of these, you know, these women who, you know, complain about his sexual abuse, you know, we just pretend that all didn't happen. And that somebody had at least enough gumption in, in and around the orbit in Rome to say that this is probably too far. And, and I mean, I, what, what strengthened this theory for me is the way in which the Vatican press department, when this all blew up on Thursday, had a, had a sort of glib stock answer ready, uh, which is, you know, Paolo Ruffini, the prefect for the dicastery of communications, um, Arguably the most senior layman in the Curia? Probably not. I mean, by by rank, I suppose he's the prefect of a dicastery. But in terms of actual power, I, I think the actual, probably the most powerful layperson is there's a religious sister who's basically the COO of the vicariate of the Vatican City State. And I think that's probably. Yeah. And actually, this she's not technically a member of the Roman Curia, but also a person of high import is. Um, Sister Natalie um, Bergart. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I can never, I've never successfully, I'm even close to pronouncing that, uh, who is the undersecretary for the Synod Secretariat, but effectively the CEO of the Synod on Synodality. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they probably are the most senior lay people. But anyway, um, 
but anyway, Paolo Ruffini had a, had a, had an answer ready when he was asked, you know, is the Pope going to do something about this bishop in Slovenia incarnating more corrupting? He said, every diocese has its own bishop. Like, sort of, you know, what's it got to do with the Pope? It's you know, um, you know, which is I, which is I mean, I I I've met Paolo Ruffini once. And he was a charming and professional man. And yeah, we had a very in, we had a very lengthy him. meeting with him in which we found him to be a perfectly professional professional. Yes, um, I I wouldn't so I wouldn't go so far as to accuse him of deliberate irony and saying in 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 implying that what what interest has the bishop of Rome in what other diocesan bishops do in their diocese? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, because that's not exactly characteristic of our our holy father Pope Francis's style of governance. Um, <laughs> but he had that answer sort of ready. He felt prepared to sort of make off-the-cuff witticisms when questioned about this. So again, this suggests to me that this was known, it was going to come out, and you know, uh, this was likely to happen. But I mean, it really was a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, no, perfect storm. You can't control the weather. In this case for the Holy See, the Rupnik scandal on Thursday, the day after we found out about all of this, or it's first started leaking out when it was really substantiated and you know, we had comments from the diocese and everything. It be you know the 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 Roman Curia really couldn't stop stepping on rakes for the whole day. Um, we had uh, a, a lady theologian for the Synod on Synodality at the press conference say that it was really important um, that the, as part of the synodal process, the church and the church hierarchy learn to sit at the feet of women and and listen right. and learn, um, which jived badly on a day when it was quite clear the church hierarchy had no interest whatsoever in sitting at the feet of, let alone listening the victims to of Marco or Rupnik. learning from the victims of Marco Rupnik. Um, then Bishop, or, sorry, excuse me, Cardinal Robert Prevost, who's the prefect of the dicastery for bishops, so basically the guy who runs all the Vosestes investigations into bishops accused of misconduct themselves or of um, maladministration in the investigation of clerical Misconduct under the norms of Vosestes Luxmundi was asked about the Pontifical Council for the Protection of Minors plea to the Synod last month that they um, front and center the the voice and experience of right. sexual abuse victims as part of the synodal listening process. You know, basically saying if you are looking for the peripheries, the marginalized, the spiritually poor, the wounded, this would be them. Could you hear from them? And so he's asked about that. And he said, "Look, sexual abuse." Isn't really what the sin is about. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, quite. It was the the subject was raised a couple of times, but it'd yeah, be quite wrong seriously, you said that. that's not the that's not what we're here to talk about. Is basically what you said. Right, right, right. Uh, so that wasn't great. Uh, at this point, you know, you know that was sort of strike two in the day of you know the big news outside of the synodal hall is Marco Rupnik, and inside the synodal hall we had the sort of oh well. You know, sit at the feet of women and listen, except for the victims of sexual abuse, and then asking the prefect of the dicastery for bishops about it. And he said basically, well, no, we're not really here to talk about victims of sexual abuse or listen to them. So let's not, you know, change the subject, please. And then Pope Francis came to the synodal hall to make a speech in which he decried uh, the scandal and, and scourge of clericalism in the for church. For a moment, you thought maybe he's I, there. Honest maybe he's to God, uh-huh. I thought, yeah. here he goes. All right, Pope and Francis is going to weigh in. Daddy's coming to town. There was so much profound pushback that day. You know, there was so much, there was so much, uh, not in the, so much in the press hall where um, people were not asking questions about Mark Roping, but elsewhere, you know, on, on Rome and the media. Nobody was, who was called on was asking no questions. No one was called upon asking questions about Mark Roping, but elsewhere and in the media and these things, there was so much... Um, clear pushback. I know so many people, and you do too, who said that finding out that Rupnik had been incarnated and presumably been the recipient of priestly faculties was just extraordinarily demoralizing. I mean, I think especially for priests in, in priestly ministry to find out, okay, this is, um, th- there is no reliable rule of law in any meaningful way whatsoever. If this no, we are happen. we are into what, was it Cicero who, who described it as, for my friends, everything for everyone else, the law. Right, that's right. Yeah, um, I think it was deeply demoralizing for a lot of people. So I thought the Pope, when he was going to give a speech on clericalism, and I got the text of the speech and I started reading it, might address this. And then he said how unhappy he was that young priests in Rome go to ecclesiastical tailors to try on something. And then he said something that didn't even make sense, that to try on lace cassocks. And I have never in my life seen a lace cassock. Uh, I haven't either. But I mean, it's not just that he said he doesn't like it. He called... Priests going to places like Gamorellis and trying on hats. He called this a scandal. Yeah, and that's the right. scourge of clericalism on the face of the church. 
mm-hmm. that this is what is doing violence to the people of God is priests right. trying on hats. And the people on of God said, no, 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 no. It's not the hats. It's not the hats. It's not the hats. <laughs> so um, that was Thursday. And at this point, I, I think it would be fair to say, I mean, I... Um, well, that was, was all that Wednesday? I think all of that was Wednesday, right? Was, that, was all that Wednesday? I think the speech and everything was Wednesday. I think you're right. The speech and everything yeah. was Wednesday. It was a long day. In the it was a long period. day. It was a perfect day. We had It was a perfect storm of a day in that we had Rupnik first thing. Then we had sit at the feet of women and not listen if they're victims of sexual abuse. Then we had Which stop I, talking. The woman, I think the woman who said the thing about sit at the feet of, of women, this theologian, I... For what it's, she wasn't I, what, asked about or talking about Rupnik. I to yeah, be clear about that. She that was a Nigerian. Know, I mean, she didn't know. Probably didn't even know that the Rupnik no, thing it was, was. And she was being entirely was bad, it was terrible. It time looked terrible. That That's there's right. a you know there's this theologian there saying you know the synod needs to value the experience of women. Yeah. And outside of the church, we're giving Marco Rupnik. That's right. Yeah. So no, that she wasn't being sort of ironic or tone yeah. She was being sincere. It's just that was the timing of the thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, then you had Cardinal Prevost, and then you had Pope Francis saying, "No, the real scandal of clericalism that upsets everyone is Saturn. hats. Yeah. It's the hats. It's the hats. It's the lace cassocks, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever. And lace so cassocks. it was a demoralizing day for people who were paying attention to the news of the Some church. Some people were demoralized. I wasn't demoralized. Um, what were you? I was drunk by the end of the day. I mean, I was so mad. I was you know i i had to i had to do something to calm down because i was just going to be up all night fuming and fulminating did you say you were drunk by the end of the day yeah oh i just didn't hear what you said okay well teach his own what do you do when you're so angry what do you do when you're so angry that you can't um you, you feel like you're either going to explode punch a wall or and you know you're trying very very hard not to give vent to your spleen in a public setting because you have to cover the news i think i probably experience like I, i'm not this is not i think i probably just experience certain things differently than you do i get sad about such matters oh i don't get sad i get furious i know it's different um, i think it's actually why we're complimentary but i get sad about such matters that maybe I no I I found it a moment of uh, beyond the sort of I mean rage I'm pretty sure that. I got some gelato on Wednesday night that's drown my sorrows in a little stracciatella yeah that wouldn't work for me um, <laughs> okay but beyond being sort of furious about and on behalf of the the decades worth of victims of Rupnik especially those who you know had made the difficult decision to come forward and speak publicly about their experiences and everything they'd undergone and all of this stuff I I, I thought it was a moment of very important clarity. Like, this is the level of dysfunction at which the church is operating on this issue. Uh, I think you have, at one point, you described to me the response of the diocese, Marko Rupnik's mm-hmm. new diocese of Koper in Slovenia as a sort of, you know, fossil. It's the perfect, did I say that on this show or did I say that it's on the you first did, take? I can't remember if it was take one or take two. So. Yeah, I called it the perfect pre-2002 response. Yeah, a clericalist response mm-hmm. par excellence, um, a sort of encased in amber relic from from another time. But I, I don't think it is. I think this is where, at least at some levels of the church, I mean, I think the places that have undergone great scandal and upheaval at the local level, the Church of the United States, for example, um, you know, Chile, where all of the bishops submitted their resignations at once uh, in 2018 or early 2019. Um you know, they they they've had particular experiences, but in most parts of the church, 2002 never happened, 2018 never happened, um, and it still hasn't happened. You know, we're seeing you know France is, is undergoing this sort of wave of episcopal sexual abuse scandals, where you know serving cardinals who are members of Dicasters in the Roman Curia, yeah, that's right, sort of publicly admitted. Well, yeah, I did molest this 14 year old, you know, a couple of years ago, but you know, I'm sorry about that. So I'll just carry on and things like that. And, you know, again, for, for our friends, everything for, for everyone else, the law that it, the, the way that these cases seem to be dealt with, particularly when they're very, very publicly visible is, well, how connected is this person? That's how true. popular are they with people in high places? I and hate I think to, that I, having that out in public and so visible and so undeniable in a 24 hour period, I think was actually very, very healthy. I mean, not in the sense of it, it made anything better, but I think as a diagnostic tool, it was vital. We're going to talk about this more when we get back from this word from our sponsors. 
Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their online initiative, primesoil.com. If you are a listener to this show, you know Decided Excellence. They're a print magazine company which partners with parishes all over the country to produce their own magazines for the purpose of communication and evangelization to local communities. Since they began sponsoring The Pillar, Decided Excellence has initiated magazines with parishes in Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Florida, Massachusetts, all over the country, really. And any parish that partners with Decided Excellence has the opportunity to blend local content with Decided Excellence's national contributors from Mordon Fire, Relevant Radio, Dr. Scott Hahn, and Ascension Press. If you want to learn about all that, you can visit decidedexcellence.com slash parish to learn more, and you should. But there's yes. more. There is. Well, there is more. But I mean, just before we go on to the more, I would also just like to say, I mean, Decided Excellence's whole thing and what they have been saying with and through us since they came on board as sponsors that, you know, this is all about turning your parish newsletter into a parish magazine, effectively. How mm-hmm. can you How can you do print media for your local Catholic community in a real way. And I love that. I mean, you know, we, we make our living through a website, but I love print media. Who doesn't? I mean, it it is something wonderful. And to be able to have that kind of um, even evangelizing tool, narrative tool for the life of your local community of faith, as well as, you know, sort of catechetical resources and stuff to draw on. I just, I love the premise of it. But so yeah, I mean the, the parishes who who work with um, Decided Excellence, they also have access to articles from um, this PrimeSoil.com program, which they're now running, which has, if you can believe it, um, it nothing to do with manure. It's inspired by the parable of the sower. Uh, you know, it's it's the good ground in which the word of God can grow and bear fruit. It's it's an overflow of basically everything Decided Excellence has been trying to do. That's sort of evangelizing oriented. It's another space on the internet where Catholics can visit to you know, nurture their spiritual life. Um, they've been gathering together Catholic men and women from all walks of life to share about their experiences of allowing the word of God to bear fruit in their lives. And they've got new content up there almost daily, you know, gospel reflections um, from after Sunday mass from a team of clerical writers, catechetical explanations, articles from laymen and women striving to live an authentic Catholic life in the world. So you can you can check all of that out at primesoil.com. Um, and if you like what you see, subscribe to them. The subscription is free, so you can save all of your subscription dollars for the pillar, please. Yeah. Um, but wait, there is more. First, Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their uh, and their print magazines, which are awesome for your parish, decidedexcellence.com slash parish. Then um, Decided Excellence's uh, initiative, primesoil.com, which you should definitely check out. And then listen to this. Decided Excellence is also a premium sponsor of the National Eucharistic Congress, taking place in Indianapolis next July. Ed and I will be there reporting on the news of the Eucharistic Congress. Um, and all of Decided Excellence's uh, magazines nationwide have exclusive content from the National Eucharistic Revival. In addition, Decided Excellence is sponsoring a breakout session at the Eucharistic Congress itself. Decided Excellence is presenting the Eucharistic Timeline, which is a primesoil.com project. The Eucharistic Timeline will use sacred scripture, sacred art, and the testimony of the saints to enter into the mystery of the Eucharist. The breakout will take a spiritual journey through time to examine key moments that God uses to reveal the truth of the body of Christ. Listen, if you have the privilege of attending the National Eucharistic Congress next year, consider signing up for the Eucharistic Timeline Breakout Session because it's going to be really cool and it's going to come from our friends at Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their new online initiative, primesoil.com. Check it out, primesoil.com. All right, everybody, we are back, and uh, I'll tell you the truth. I don't know that we're going to talk that much about the Synod on Synodality in this episode because we are still talking about Father Marco Rupnik and what will happen. It's time for it now for us to talk about what will happen next, which is, I think, what a lot of people are looking for from the pillar because we, this is going to be a canonical process. So um, we, we took you basically through last Wednesday when um, the news broke that Marco Rupnik had been incarnated in a diocese in Slovenia, and this was a source of extraordinary scandal all around the world. Um, but on Friday, Ed, uh, the Holy See's press office announced that the Pope had decided uh, to um, waive the statute of limitations, which had previously prevented a penal case in, uh, with regard to the allegations against Marco Rupnik of serial sexual abuse in the context of the confessional uh, by religious sisters, um, and allow the uh, congregation, excuse me, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith to get going on the process. The announcement itself was interesting, was it not? I found the wording of it. Interesting. Yes. Certainly carefully worded. Carefully worded. <laughs> yes. So what the what the actual announcement said was this, uh, which was dated October twenty seventh. They put it out Friday about about a little after a little after noon Rome time. Yeah. And it said in September, 
the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors brought to the Pope's attention that there were serious problems in the handling of the Father Marco Rupnik case and a lack of outreach to victims, full stop. Uh, do you want to go line by line on this statement, J.D., or should I read the whole thing and then we can... <laughs> okay, well, let's start right there, okay? So, so read that again. it's true that the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors did, in September, make a valiant effort to draw the Pope's attention to the serious problems in the handling of the case of Father Marco Rupnik and the lack of outreach to his many, many, many alleged victims. Um they they did so quite publicly. They in September, uh, the Pontifical Council for Commission for the Protection of Minors brought to that to the Pope's attention. They released this very public statement raising issues about the Rupnik. It was a really big deal because the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors has been taking uh, uh, has been taking a new approach to its ministry, whereas before it met with the Pope and gave him advice. Of late, it has been issuing statements and speaking out very seriously about things that the members of the commission perceive to be inappropriately handled in the life of the church. It is a very, it's a very new thing just in recent months that the PCPM well, has sort of... Yeah, but a couple of things have happened. Um, most of them could be called Father Hanzolner leaving. That's right. That is the and, thing that happened. Calling them out as he walked out the door saying, I can't work here anymore. This Because is, these guys are patsies is effectively what he said. He he suggested that the ability and disposition of the Pontifical Commission to affect real change in the hierarchy was limited. I think and it does point. not seem like they appreciated that criticism, or it seems like perhaps maybe another way of saying that is it seems like they appreciated that criticism. It does not seem like they decided to take that criticism lying down and decided instead to the members of the Pontifical Commission began issuing statements on the Synod on Synodality, for example, urging the Synod on Synodality to address seriously clerical sexual abuse uh, um, in the life of the church, um, raising to the Pope their concerns about the Marco Rupnik case, putting out other statements as well. So right. something has changed with the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. But this statement said, in September, that happened. Now, the next and, sentence now, is... Well, but bear in mind the context. So what when the PCPM came out swinging against the Marco Rupnik case's many failings and its many limitations and the refusal to lift the statute of limitations and the other problems, this didn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like they woke up in September and said, right. hey, what about Rupnik? That's um, right. First of all, this happened the month after Rupnik was actually incarnated in this diocese in Slovenia, although no one knew that yet. Although but no one knew that except Rupnik. Well, and no the, one publicly knew that. I don't know yeah. who knew that already in Rome. I, okay. Again, my 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 knee-jerk thesis, which I hold to, is they were going to incarnate him in Rome. And that's because this is the other thing that happened um, in September was Cardinal De Donatus, the vicar for the Diocese of Rome, the Pope's vicar in his, home, in his own Diocese of Rome, released a statement on this report that he had commissioned to look into the Rupnik case. Why? I, I'm not entirely clear because Marco Rupnik was a Jesuit, not a priest of the Diocese of Rome. And Cardinal Didonos had previously said on the record in public, I was powerless to investigate Rupnik because he wasn't one of my priests. What he's alleged to have done was not taking place in the diocesan facility. It was all you know, to do with religious communities and things like that. This is nothing. This is not my pigeon. It was not my job to prosecute this. And I never heard anything about it anyway. Mm -hmm. So why Cardinal Didonos commissioned a big independent investigation into um, a cleric that wasn't his for crimes he apparently doesn't think he ever committed yep. um, in matters that were, according to him, not under his jurisdiction is anyone's guess, unless, of course, you're thinking about incarnating the guy. That's right. Um, so anyway, Cardinal Didinus puts this statement out on behalf of the Diocese of Rome, or rather, I should say the Diocese of Rome puts this statement out on behalf of Cardinal Didinus in September. And that's when the PCPM goes public with saying, "What is what is everyone doing here about like, are you people all crazy? So that's the context in which the PCPM made this statement. It wasn't as if Marco Rupnik had just sort of vanished into the ether and no one was talking about him or thinking about him. Yeah. On the contrary, uh, there was a serious effort underway in Rome to rehabilitate him. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what I would say about that first sentence in this, again, as you say, curious statement they put out. So Second first sentence... sentence in the context of an effort to rehabilitate Marco Rupnuk, the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors put out a statement. Here's the next sentence. Consequently. Consequently. The Holy Father asked the Dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith to review the case and decided to lift the statute of limitations to allow a process to, to take place. First sentence says, in September. Second sentence says, consequently. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Holy See 
was subreptious in what it issued here, but many people believe that the Holy See was being subreptious in the way that it issued this here. Because um, the implication, at least to many people, seems to be that soon after the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors brought this to the Pope's attention in September, the Pope or did something about it. As a, as in, as a consequence of what the PCPM did in September, that that's mm-hmm. cause and effect. As a consequence. You've even got the word consequently there to suggest yeah. as much. But that is what they are stating, is they are saying cause was PCPM statement in September, effect is the Pope has decided but to do what this is omitted thing. there? What, what is, is omitted a- is the narrative of reality, which is manifestly clear because it is playing out in reality. In September, the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors raised concerns about Marco Rupnik. Nothing happened. In October, in late October, it was reported that Marco Rupnik had been incarnated in a diocese in Slovenia. Two days later, the Holy See announced that the Holy Father had asked the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith to review the case and decided to lift the statute of limitations. And what happened in the sort of 36 hours in between those two things was the entire public Catholic world lost their ever-loving minds. Serious pushback. I, I think this whole thing, and this is why we're spending time on this, and I think this Rupnik story is as significant as the story of Theodore McCarrick, if not more. Oh, more. More. This story is a story about the question of whether or not the church's promises of reform. And I hate this because, Ed, I love the church. I love being a Catholic. After 2018 happened, I wanted to see the bishops said we need to make a serious reckoning for this. And then they made a serious reckoning for this. And then we could tell a good news story about how the thing was working. We can tell good news stories. We we can. I can tell you about bishops who are addressing sexual abuse and misconduct well in their dioceses. I'm glad we can tell those stories. But that those stories are set against the context of the Holy See <laughs> raising profound concerns about the way it has handled this case. I mean, from top to bottom, profound concerns even about the basic honesty of a statement, which seems and I, I again I want I I I'm rooting for the Holy See. I'm a I, I'm a Catholic. I I love the church. I'm rooting for the Holy See. There's no way to read this statement from an informed perspective and not think that it was intended, um, if not to deceive, to evade. And and just to throw some more context in, Marco Rupnik's kicked out of the Jesuits in June and immediately, according to the Diocese of Koper in Slovenia, applies for incarnation there. In August, he's granted it. After, we are told, the local bishop has consulted with the Apostolic Nuncio. Right. So he said, I, I, I realize this could be a little touchy. I better I better ask the Vatican. Am I right. good here? Am I on safe ground? Is this the right, right thing to do? Meanwhile, the Holy the See, of Rome through the Nuncio, says, clearly, go nuts. You're cool. Uh, you can count on us having your back. And the initial reaction of the Dicastery di- di- for Communications of the Holy See is, hey, every diocese has its own bishop. Let it go. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the background, the Diocese of Rome is preparing a literal dossier to try and rehabilitate Rutnick. I mean, there is no other plausible reading of this chain. And then on Friday, after this statement comes out, there's a Vatican press conference, and people ask, journalists raise their hand to ask, what is it that motivated the Pope to waive the statute of limitations? What is it that motivated the Salastampa, the press office, to release this statement? And Ms. Ruffini, the prefect of the Vatican Dicastrian Communications, one of the top-ranking lay people in the church's governance apparatus, says— previously had a very ready and very witty answer on when asked about Mark Rodnick just a day and a half earlier. I have—says not once but twice, I have nothing to add to the statement. It's—there's nothing to be flip or glib about here. This story is as important as McCarrick because McCarrick already happened. Zanquette already happened. This is happening in real time that, that, that an apostolic nuncio, it, it, it effectively delegate of the Holy See, seems to be saying, yeah, those 17-ish allegations of spiritual and sexual abuse of religious sisters as well as blasphemy been, against the sacrament. Yeah, as well as blasphemy against the sacrament. Haven't been tried. And since they haven't been tried, we 
see no reason to prevent you from incarnating the guy. Well, uh, they haven't been tried because we haven't allowed them to be tried. Because we haven't allowed them to be tried. Now, yeah, yeah no, forget it. I was going to do it on the other hand, but there is no, no other There is hand. no on the other hand, because the uh, the normal arguments you make about the statute of limitations, and when, when I say you make, I mean one would make, about the statute no, of limitations. I no, I make them too. Uh, the statute, look, the statute of limitations is not a joke. It exists for a reason. There are serious questions about justice, especially when you're dealing with accusations that go back decades. Because, and I mean, I've worked these cases as a chemist, and so have you on opposite sides of the football. Um, and it is very, very difficult on in many occasions to locate probative, usable evidence mm-hmm. for something that happened, um, usually in a very discreet place, usually without a lot of witnesses around, decades prior. That that's a hard reach in terms of a legal process, mm-hmm. um, but nevertheless, in cases of sexual abuse, the statute of limitations is routinely waived by the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. It is these cases are routinely tried by the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, and with way less to work with, way less evidence to go on than the number of firsthand accounts of alleged victims as have come forward in the Rupnik's case. I mean the. The the kind of detailed narrative and evidence that has been offered by the women who say they've been abused by Rupnik and the numbers in which they've come forward to, first of all, the Society of Jesus, but you know through them to the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Face in the first place is, I mean, really an extraordinary number that more than merits on the basis of what is habitually done by that same Dicastery, the waiving of the statute of limitations. I mean, there is even accepting all of the arguments that are normally made in favor of the statute of limitations, especially for cases that are some, in some instances decades old, this is an exception, a clear and gaping exception for which the legal power to dispense from the statute of limitations exists in the first place, and yet they didn't want to do it. That's right. This might be a little controversial, but it, it happens to be what I think, so what the hell. Rupnik worse than McCarrick. In terms of scandal and what it says about the about the state of the church, um, McCarrick was a scandal decades in the making. How he came to rise in the church so high is a terrible thing for which we have not had, I would say, clear answers. The McCarrick report was not, I think, and we've written about this in the past, um, was not a helpful document in that sense. And I do not think it gave clear accountability. I mean, it blamed no one basically. It sort of you know was written in this weird passive voice of you know. Things happened, and you know the issue of how McCarrick was able to bribe his way to avoid scrutiny, either from ecclesiastical superiors or from people around him, or even you know press in some cases, has never been addressed either in the McCarrick report or more generally. So McCarrick is bad. I mean, all of this to say McCarrick is bad. He's also accused of you know sexually harassing and molesting teenage boys. Also bad, very bad, in fact. Terribly, criminally bad. Not getting an argument from me here, buddy. But Rubnick is even worse as a scandal. Because Rubnick comes after McCarrick at a time when we are supposed to have a far greater sensitivity to how a person of influence and position in the church can use and abuse that position of influence in the church and the friends and favors they've earned along the way to shield themselves from accountability and abuse. And what we learned in the Rubnick case is actually, nah, you can, you can still almost get away with it. And I, honestly, the only reason Rupnik will now, I suspect, be laicized, and I suspect Marco Rupnik will be laicized, and he'll I be think laicized, he will be, but he'll be laicized in exactly the same way Theodore McCarrick was, which is there will be an accelerated, entirely private, without any disclosure of the details of the charges he's facing at the DDF, um, canonical extrajudicial process, and there will just one day in the next year, possibly eighteen months, be a statement out of the DDF saying. Marco Rupnik has been convicted of an undisclosed number of undisclosed charges resulting right. in his laicization. And that's all we'll hear about it. Rupnik is worse than McCarrick because it came after McCarrick and we're supposed to have learned lessons. And actually, it's just being handled worse. Because yeah. here's the thing. When the, when, when the McCarrick scandal broke in June of 2018, Theodore McCarrick was immediately out of all public life in the church. Yeah, He was put under lock and key. By the end of July, he'd been made to resign as mm-hmm. a cardinal. And was basically never seen publicly again, a year and a bit before he was laicized. Marco Rupnik is only going to be laicized because in the end, he and his buddies got greedy and tried to push for him to get all the way back into public life. And you know, just like McCarrick, when Rupnik is laicized, there will be a group of people, this is true for McCarrick, there will be a group of people in the Vatican who think that 
McCarrick slash Rupnik were laicized at the altar of American alarmism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's entirely right. So now here's the question that we're going to, now here's the question that I have come to a conclusion about, and maybe you haven't either, but it needs to be asked. And I'm, perhaps you have come to a conclusion about it. Where is the Lord in this? Suffering with the victims. Yeah, that's a good answer. It's where he always is. Yeah, that's a really good answer, which means, which means actually, which is uh, what I like about that answer is because it means where ought we to be in this? Um, at the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. Which means also suffering with the victims in solidarity with the victims who are suffering yeah. in this. Yeah. Those peripheral marginal poor that are supposed to be the focus of the synod on synodality. Yeah. And instead what we got was a giant long conversation about women deacons and making sure that, you know, the right number of people have access to the right positions of authority and structure and hierarchy in the church. Well, this is why I'm angry all the time, JD. (laughs) (laughs) On Friday, we will talk about the Synod on Synodality, what's happened there, which is, I think, very honestly, I think you're right. Um, by comparison to the gravity of this situation, which I think will be a lens through which the this period of time after McCarrick will be evaluated and not favorably, um, the Synod on Synodality seems a relatively trivial affair, to me at least, by comparison. On Friday we'll talk about it and what That's else is coming. Something promises. Uh, maybe some real news will happen in the interim. That's true. This week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Decided Excellence Catholic Media and their online initiative, primesoil.com. To find out what primesoil.com is all about, check it out at primesoil.com. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Edit J.D. Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Condon. We'll be back when the day is new, and we'll have more ideas for you. <laughs>